The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Greetings and salutations, everybody. It is I, CJ. Your humble hazardous history helmsman, back with another episode of Dangerous History. This episode features a recent conversation I had with Daryl Cooper of the podcast Martyr Mate. Now, many of you are probably at least somewhat familiar with Daryl and his podcast. It's a pretty big history podcast. It's really blown up over the past year or so, I think. And he's an interesting guy, very smart and well-read, and I've been kind of looking for a reason to do an episode with him for a while. And then when he released his most recent, as of this recording anyway, podcast episode, The Anti-Humans, which is all about some of the absolutely horrific crimes against humanity perpetrated by Soviet communists from the 1920s to the 1940s. When I heard this episode, first off, it was very disturbing. But second off, it was extremely well done and I think very important. So very soon after I listened to that episode of Martyr Made, I got in touch with Daryl and he was kind enough to spend some time talking with me about that episode, but really the conversation free ranges quite a bit, as you'll see. Unfortunately, we did have a few tech hiccups here and there during the conversation, and I've done my best in editing to make it not too disjointed, and there are some spots where it just completely drops out, where Daryl completely dropped off of the Zoom call and had to call back in and whatever. So what I'll do is I'll put in little tones at any spot where we just flat out lost the recording. But anyway, no more introductory blather from me. Please enjoy my conversation with Daryl Cooper. Okay, so I'm super happy to be talking to, for the first time over the Zoom, Daryl Cooper of Martyr Made Podcast. Daryl, how are you doing today? Doing very well. Happy to finally talk to you. Yeah, so most of my listeners probably are at least aware of your podcast, and I know that many of them listen to it, So, but for whatever percentage are not aware or are only vaguely aware, could you give the, the quick Cliff Notes intro of kind of who you are and what you do. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so uh, I started a podcast in 2015 that is, um, especially back then, my first series uh, was very, very similar, uncannily similar. Perhaps one might even call it a bit of a ripoff of hardcore history, right down to my tone of voice and pacing, because like most of us in this uh, in this area, I was you know very much influenced by by Dan's work, and I actually started the podcast largely because. Uh, you know, in between the six to eight to nine months that we have to wait for episodes of Hardcore History, I would always 
complain about it and talk to my friends about how I couldn't wait for a new episode until they finally talked me into just starting my own. And so, um, you know, I, I have a little bit, uh, maybe broader set of interests than Dan does. I like getting into, um, you know, religious studies and anthropology and, and, and political science and drilling a little bit deeper on a lot of those topics than, than he does. Um, you know, I don't handle large scale military history anywhere as well as the grand master, but, um, uh, you know, I, I'm sort of the, the, the grand master of going off on weird tangents and, uh, you know, trying and sometimes failing to, uh, loop myself back around to the original topic. And so, um, yeah, I've been doing the podcast since 2015. I never really expected anybody to listen to it. Um, turns out, uh, you know, some people found it. One of those people was, uh, Jocko Willink, the former, uh, Navy SEAL commander who's got a pretty big audience. And he hit me up uh, several years ago and we kind of became friends because he was a fan of the podcast. And so over the last year or so, I've been uh, doing a lot of work with Jocko. We've got a podcast called The Unraveling. It's about an hour, hour and a half podcast. We try to put out every week where, uh, you know, we kind of dive into historical topics and, you know, sometimes occasionally contemporary uh, issues and try to try to tie some historical threads up to modern and contemporary issues. So. Yeah. Well, first off, my hat's off to you for picking the Israel-Palestine conflict as your very first story that that takes some huevos and <laughs> uh, and and to start right out of the gate with like Dan Carlin length episodes. I mean, I've I've done a few episodes that are maybe four hours or a little over, but you I, know. I think as you'll find maybe in this interview that that's largely because I drink too much caffeine and just can't shut up. So, <laughs> yeah, well, I know the feeling. So, you know, we've interacted a little bit online here and there, uh, and we collaborated kind of asynchronously and remotely with that, uh, that episode of history on fire last year with several other podcasters. But that was fun. Yeah. 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 It was really cool. And it was a, a great mix of, of, you know, podcasting styles, but also of topics. So it was a nice sort of potpourri. But when I heard your most recent episode, which is titled The Anti Humans, I was like, all right, I got to have him on for an episode of my podcast to talk about this because, you know, I've, I've listened to your Israel Palestine series. I still haven't finished your your uh, Jim Jones and, and Joe Jonestown series. I'm still somewhere in the middle of that. Um, what happened to, to my work life over the last year really took a bite out of my podcast listening because it got I rid of my you. commute. You know, that's where I used to do a lot I of my podcast you. listening. Yeah. So now it's only when I'm, you know, mowing the lawn or working out or something like that. But um, when I heard this episode, which digs into a lot of the crimes of, mostly Soviet communism, although also sometimes they're sock puppets in uh, Eastern Europe. You know, it was stuff that I knew about, but I didn't know all of the horrific details that you get into in the episode. But when I heard it, I was like, okay, this is one of the most disturbing podcasts I've ever heard, but it's also one of the most important because as you kind of mentioned several times in the episode, and as I've been bugged by for many years there's this thing where the communists don't get held to account hardly ever they don't and the nazis get held to account constantly as they should 
as they should, right? I mean, and you know, none of anything that we're saying here that you say in this episode, I'm sure, is intended to take away from any of the hor- horrible things you know done by the Nazis. But the fact that like you you never stop hearing about all the Nazis' crimes, but the communist crimes, like you've got to go deliberately looking for them. And if you don't know that they're there, it's kind of like an unknown, unknown situation. So. Yeah, well, and one of the reasons for that real quick, you know, is that, um, you know, the the academic and sort of managerial class in the United States and, and really a lot of Europe uh, in the Cold War era, you know, put themselves in a position where um, even as those crimes started to become, you know, the information really did become available for them to admit uh, that and to, and to change the narrative as much as it would have to be changed to, to integrate all that information would have um, it would have meant eating so much crow that it really would have largely delegitimized like a large portion of the leadership class in, 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 in our countries. And so when it did come out, um, you know, a lot of them did drop their explicit defense of the Soviet union and of, you know, Stalinist style state communism, but uh, you know, rather than than eating that crow and kind of adjusting the narrative, they just sort of stopped talking about it. You know what I mean? Yeah, as much as possible, they just kind of like put it in the memory hole. And then when they kind of feel that they can't avoid it, then they go into like apologetics gymnastics mode where they're like, well, you know, you got to put it in context. Well, you know, they were trying to to fight off worse guys or, oh, they were trying to protect the revolution from reactionaries within. And, you know, they, they go into apologetics mode in a way that they never would in regard to, you know, any any fascist regime or just sort of run of the mill authoritarian dictatorship. And it's it's really obvious. Absolutely. Sure. I mean, you know, I mean, from the very beginning, there was a, there was an ideological sympathy between, uh, you know, sort of the leadership class that was emerging in the West and you know, in the United States at the time, ever since the progressive era really kicked off in the 1880s and 90s and the Soviets. Um, not necessarily with the, you know, the, the mass murder, the killing or anything like that. They, they really would have preferred not to talk about that or to deny it as they, as they did very often. But in the general sense that, um, you know, this, this messy version of politics, like as the way in the, in the way that it manifests in the United States, for example, in the 1800s, if you look at the United U S political system, in the 1800s, I mean, it's just third world tier like politics, right? You've got, you know, uh, ethnic machines running all the big cities, you know, whether Catholic or Irish here, whatever else, it's just a big mess of like patronage systems and corruption uh, to a level that, uh, you know, it was third world tier corruption, like, you know, in the United States and the original sort of class of people who came here, you know, the Mayflower people, the, the Anglos who, you know, the wasps who were used to being in the traditional leadership class over the several decades since maybe the civil war. Or so you'd had just, you know, a mass of immigration, including a lot of non-WASP types, right? Irish, uh, German, Southern Europeans, Catholics, Jews who were coming into the place and they were taking over the cities and creating these patronage networks. You were starting to see the rise of like small scale organized crime networks and things like this. And you had the WASP elite class that was kind of spreading out over the country at this point. And they're kind of looking and saying, like, you know, uh, how, how are we supposed to in, um, you know, the 1900, in, in the early 1900s, in, in, say, the year 1900, manage uh, a country that spans from New York to Seattle, 
right? Like if we, if we want Seattle to do something, that is a very difficult thing. You're going to send a guy out there. It's going to take weeks to get an in very hard thing to do. And, you know, this, this primitive sort of patronage style political system, as they had it set up at the time, uh, they were losing control of the country in many ways to like the, these, you know, the, the newer people who were coming in and to a large degree, the progressive uh, movement, the early progressive movement, um, was a sort of wasp reaction to all of this, to this loss of control and an attempt to like impose a sort of managerial bureaucratic style, you know, expert, as we like to put it today, expert sort of control. And it's this idea that like politics in general, this struggle for power between groups and everything is really this like messy, ugly kind of thing that we really in this rationalistic 19th and early 20th century should be able to be moving past, right? We should be able to rationally, expertly look at these issues, put permanent like sort of professionals in charge of a bureaucracy who can manage these issues without having to involve politics and all that mess into it. And so, right, you know, that's something that uh, that you know, you can you can kind of see from hearing that that like there's a direct ideological sympathy between that outlook and what the Bolsheviks and the Soviets and you know the the Soviets and the communists were trying to do. Um, and again, it's not necessarily the mass murder part of it, but that's where you know a lot of that ideological sympathy does come from. Yeah, and my listeners will definitely be familiar with some of that uh, with some of the Woodrow Wilson episodes that I've done over the past couple oh, of yeah, years. Oh yeah, that's that's right. That's right. Yeah. Those yeah. were very good by the way. Well, thank yeah. you. Yeah. It's what I, I refer to it as progressivism version 1.0. Um, yeah. That's kind of how I think about it because it's obviously the, the ideological ancestor of modern progressivism, but it's also obviously not exactly the same thing. It obviously has, you know, changed and morphed in various ways. So I kind of think about like progressivism 1.0 is that late 19th, early 20th century. And then I call the FDR era 2.0, which has some important differences, but also some continuity. And then 3.0 is kind of like the 1960s great society. Um, and then we're maybe in 4.0 or 5.0, depending on how you want to how, how you want to divvy it up. But you know, things like Woodrow Wilson's essay, The Study of Administration, uh, that I did a, a whole episode just on that essay and picking it apart. And then the other episode I did that was multiple hours, just taking apart a lot of his academic writings and whatever. There's very much this this idea. They didn't use the term yet back then, but the idea of technocracy, right? The idea mm-hmm. of, you know, and, and when Woodrow Wilson talks about administration, he's really talking about most of what the state actually is and does. So he's saying administration, that, that politics should be very democratic. And he favored various reforms to, you know, make more like make U.S. senators directly elected and that sort of thing. But at the same time that he wanted politics to be more democratic, he also wanted the the administrative apparatus of government to be separated, to be like firewalled off from actual democratic politics so that, yeah, more people get to participate and vote, but their vote really doesn't matter as much. And it really is the seed of like a permanent uh, deep state in a lot of yeah, ways. And, it's, and it was something that, you know, it, it infected the way um, that they, and I shouldn't even say infected because, you know, given the, uh, given the circumstances of the time um, and the fact that they hadn't experienced a lot of uh, the consequences of, you know, of this approach yet, um, it was a reasonable way of looking at things, you know, given, given the experience that they had uh, up to that point and so forth. So I, I shouldn't really put it in, in a way that, that demonizes them, but um it was an outlook that uh, bled over into the way, you know, that is the idea that you could administer a state without involving uh, politics really in the, in the administrative aspects of it. 
in the economy, for example, like a lot of what communism and, and state socialism are in general is the idea that like the basic laws of economics that we had kind of laid down, you know, having to do with scarcity and supply and demand and, you know, resource competition, that these things that we're smarter than that now, that we should be able to just put smart people around a table and figure these things out. And uh, people whose job this is, you know, who aren't um, necessarily attached to this group or that group or this interest, you know, block or whatever, and they should be able to figure these things out. And it sounds it sounds like a, like a good idea when you put it that way, right? Especially in you know the year eighteen ninety or nineteen hundred when they hadn't seen um, you know a lot of the a lot of the fallout. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely willing to cut people more slack before you've seen what the ideas turn into in practice. So, you know, my my personal favorite socialist, at least my favorite American socialist, is Eugene Debs. And sure. part of what I like about him is I think he was a boss for speaking out in World War One, knowing that he was going to be arrested and just doing it anyway. Um, and and I'm, I think getting into World War One was a was a horrible disaster for the United States. Yeah. So so I'm I'm a big fan of Eugene Debs. And then part of part of why I'm sympathetic to him is the horrors of communism hadn't happened yet. So. Like I can kind of cut him some slack that, you know, and who knows, right? Because he died, um, I think, in fairly early in the 1920s. Uh, so who knows, you know, would he have called out some of the excesses and worst aspects of Soviet communism? I don't know. That's true. But he didn't really have the chance. Uh, you, know, you know, the worst excesses of uh, the excesses of communism hadn't happened yet. And um, the reforms that sort of soften the edges of capitalism hadn't happened yet to a large degree either. You know, um, and so that's where a lot of these people are coming from. I'm working on a uh, on my next major series is going to be on episodes in uh, the history of the uh, labor movement in the United States. And to me, the labor movement is it's the best of the U.S. right there. Like, you know, the history of the labor movement is the most inspiring you know, set of stories. And it, it, it's just it takes everything that's good about this country and um, and, get, you know, it's a perfect vehicle for expressing it. And as you're going through, like in the, you know, in the 1800s, before and after the Civil War, you look at, you know, a lot of these people, you know, especially now, uh, I don't know if a lot of your audience knows about uh, kind of what's happened with me lately with that viral Twitter thread or anything, but I've now got like a large audience of just sort of, um, you know, Fox News sort of Tucker Carlson watching like normie type conservatives who are following me on Twitter now that I didn't have before. I went from like 7,000 to like almost 100,000 followers. And now a lot of these people are listening to my podcast right at the time that I'm about to be doing a series on a bunch of socialists and anarchists from the 19th century that I look at as serious heroes, uh, uh, like American heroes. And so, um, you know, I had come pretty far in how I was going to present that series. And then after that happened, I kind of like went back and started reworking it just a little bit because of who it is that I'm going to be communicating with. Because there's a lot of people for perfectly fair reasons today who they hear the word anarchist or socialist or whatever, and it's just immediately the walls go up, you know? And so when I, uh, you know, want to describe someone like Albert Parsons, you know, a guy who uh, is an anarchist who, when you read some of his rhetoric, is extremely inflammatory, uh, involved with the Haymarket affair in, in Chicago in 1886, but an absolute American hero. Like, you really have to make clear, like, what the circumstances were that these people were dealing with and the degradation and the ongoing worsening degradation of the workers at the time. And so, a lot of these socialists, a lot of, um, you know, even these, these hardcore, you know, bomb throwing anarchist types in the late 19th, early 20th century. You know, that's important context to understand where those people were coming from, you know, and, and also that these people were, uh, you know, were wrench wielders during the day and, and hammer bangers during the day. And they were going to socialist meetings and stuff and going to rallies 
at night. These were men and women with families who were working people who were part of this, who were part of this movement, were leading it. You know, they weren't uh, Bill de Blasio's daughter, you know, going to uh, throw feces on an NYPD officer in her spare time. But you know what I mean? It's a very different situation we've got when you look at some, you know, people like the Bolsheviks, for example, who virtually all of the Bolshevik leaders in the Soviet, Soviet Union uh, these were all people who went straight into, you know, they, they went from university politics into a revolutionary movement and never worked a day in their life, you know, um, and they and they murdered tens of millions of working people, you know, and it's uh, it's a trend we've seen ever since then, ever since it became a sort of, you know, something something that uh, became fashionable among this sort of bureaucratic managerial and academic elite that you see it all the way on up through uh, the 1960s and, and into the 70s where you have these hard left sort of, you know, quote unquote, working class proletarian politics that are completely dominated by university educated people and university students who uh, express in their day-to-day lives and and politics, almost nothing but contempt for, uh, you know, the lives and perspectives of the working people that they purport to stand for. And so that was not the case in the in the 19th century and early, even up into the early 20th century. And it's something that we, you know, that has changed in the 20th. So, yeah, that's an interesting point because, um, as I, I think you mentioned somewhere in the anti-humans episode, this idea that which people who've studied communism even a little bit quickly realize that the whole idea of the workers stayed and the workers are going to run everything in practice in the Soviet Union, uh, later elsewhere, you know, or in in regard to to China, Mao Zedong, all that stuff, that in most cases, these people, and, and you, you get a sense of a, a lot of intellectuals are this way if you read a book like The Intellectuals by Paul Johnson, you, you get a sense that a lot of these people who claim to love humanity in kind of the abstract hate individual people. Or yes. the people who love the working class and lionize the working class and, and make them the centerpiece of their propaganda and their rhetoric, they have nothing but contempt for actual real blue collar people. And you see this even today in much of the American left where they they have contempt for kind of blue collar culture and, and mores and all these sorts of things. And yet at the same time, many of those people no doubt would still claim the mantle of, Oh, I'm st- I'm standing up on behalf of, you know, the working poor and whatever. And in, in reality, they have nothing in common with those people and nothing but contempt and, 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 for no, them. And, and, and exactly no empathy for them, you know, and, and that's really the, the kind of, I mean, when, when you, there are these famous episodes from, uh, you know, the 1960s after the weathermen took over uh, students for democratic society where, uh, you know, they were preparing for their days of rage in the October of 69, a big protest in Chicago, they were going to, uh, they were going to do. And um, they spent the entire summer in 1969 trying to go out to working class, you know, job sites, factories, and all these places. You have these, you know, abstract Marxist educated sort of university students from the university of Chicago and other, and then Ivy league schools and stuff going into these working class places, trying to tell them that the U S is a Nazi state. And, you know, the, the American soldiers over in Vietnam who are probably these construction workers, brothers and cousins or whatever are, you know, Nazi baby killers. And they're just getting completely run out of these places as you can expect. Right. Um, they're trying to talk to them about free love and talk to them about, you know, the sexual revolution. You have these conservative, like, you know, rent turners at these places who don't want to hear that stuff. And rather than saying like, hmm, 
you know, uh, since we are concerned with the working class, maybe we need to sort of like take a look at where the working class is actually at and, and, and sort of meet them there. That was not what they did. They turned on those people entirely. And, you know, a lot of a lot of our politics today is the legacy of those people and the people they instructed uh, once they, you know, went and became university professors later or their their children as a class. Um, having a conflict with uh, the children of those ranch turners who they, you know, who they really turned on in those years for not embracing their, their brand of politics. Yeah. When I was coming through grad school about 18 years ago in, in my, my brief time in grad school, the, the sort of mantra always was that any historical topic you wanted to dig into, you wanted to make sure to at least address what was sometimes called the iron triangle, right? Which Back then, they would say the Iron Triangle is race, class, and gender. And even back then, it seemed like class. Now it's an iron dodecahedron. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, now class is almost not even there at all. Like they don't even yeah, bother yeah. even paying lip service to class much of the time. Which I've got some sympathy for the kind of overall idea of class conflict. I I obviously don't endorse. Bolshevism as a great solution to that problem. But I've got sympathy with like some of the critiques that somebody like Marx makes. I, I think he gets a ton of economics wrong, but a lot of his just overall kind of trying to t- trying to understand class conflict and how it works, I've got sympathy for. And, you know, as listeners may remember from something like my Bacon's Rebellion little mini episode for that history on fire thing, like I've, I've got some sympathy with the idea of of class conflict, especially when the elites are kind of abusing their their power excessively and where their 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 position is largely um just kind of arbitrary and not even based on somewhat meritocracy or whatever but it seems like yeah class has just completely gone by the wayside in all of this it's just race gender and then a few other kind of related things like you know sexual identity or or sexual uh, orientation or whatever and like that's it and class is gone Classes dropped yeah, out of the picture. I, you know, unfortunately, I think that, you know, the regime in the U.S. today has embraced a, a regime strategy that's been very common throughout history. And, it's, and it exists in several places in the world today. Um, and it's a trap that's very hard to get out of once you once you jump into it. If you look at a place like Assad, Syria, for example, right? Assad's government is a minority government. The Alawites, you know, ruling over a Sunni majority country that is not a big fan of being ruled over by Alawites, Right. Um, and uh, they have an alliance, the Assad government, with the Christians and the Druze and all of the other minorities in that country who don't want to live under a Sunni majority, uh, you know, uh, domination either. And um, so you look at like Assad's intelligence. This is the same thing with uh, Saddam, by the way, who was a Sunni leader ruling over a majority Shia country um, that was not happy about being, you know, uh, ruled over by a by a Tikriti Sunni. If you look at, you know, Saddam, a lot of his pilots, a lot of his intelligence services and stuff were Iraqi Christians um, because, you know, they, they were going to the, the minorities kind of have to stick together. He knows he can trust them because, you know, it, he's their only protection against the uh, against the prejudicial majority. Right. And it's something that you've seen regimes, you know, a lot throughout history and something that, as we'll probably talk about here in a minute, um, you know, in the anti-humans we talked about uh, as the Soviets moved into uh, Eastern European countries after the Second World War, one of the first things they did was empower a lot of the aggrieved minorities, put them in positions of like interior ministry, heads of the secret police, heads of the prisons, things like that. They would find aggrieved minorities in each of these countries and put them in these positions 
because they knew that they could trust these people because, you know, those people were dependent on the regime for their protection. And the more afraid they are of the majority population, the more certain that they are that, you know, they're uh, Polish or Romanian or American, you know, neighbors uh, want them dead, then the more they're going to cling to the regime for protection. And so it's a, in some ways, it's a very stable regime, but, uh, you know, at least for the, at least for the, uh, the period that it, you know, the period that it works. And um, yeah, it's, but it's a hard trap to get out of once you fall into it as well. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, it's it's just a modernized version of divide and conquer. It's just a, you know, even more brutal and bloody version of kind of how the British took over India and much of Africa and wherever. Same same thing. You go in and you find, you know, or or even going back further, right? The the Aztecs, uh, Cortez conquering the Aztecs. Same deal. He went to all the all the tribes that were sort of under the boot of the Aztecs and like, hey, aren't you tired of these Aztec SOBs? Hey, help help me overthrow them, right? But in reality, it was just you know letting a cuckoo into the nest. And that that was something that you talked about in the episode that I hadn't I hadn't fully appreciated kind of the the breadth and depth of which is in those those states of Eastern Europe most of which were kind of created or recreated in the aftermath of World War One that because there were always uh, significant ethnic minorities in every one of those states because those had previously been you know multi ethnic empires. So, you know, you partition off Poland, but there's going to be plenty of people in there that aren't really Polish and same thing with Czechoslovakia and so forth. I hadn't realized the degree to which when the Soviets were taking those places over in the aftermath of World War II, they were doing, you know, just what you're talking about. They were do- they were going in and finding the minorities within each of these states and at least initially putting them in charge and backing them up. Yeah, and, it, it did start to change. Yeah. Over time. That's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that's, that's what I found kind of fascinating was initially they took over that way. And then after a while, they kind of handed, handed the state over to whoever was the ethnic majority population. And then they, they then go and take revenge and it's understandable. I mean, a lot of this stuff, it just depends on where you drop the needle on the, on the record because it's like, <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. You, you can understand people who have been on the receiving end of horrible oppression and atrocities wanting revenge. It's like one of the most natural human, you know, instincts there is, is, is to get revenge. Um, not that it necessarily justifies, you know, some of the insane over the top atrocities. Uh, well, yeah. And I mean, it's, you know, in a lot of ways, it's the uh, it, it's sort of the it's, it's, it's the satanic element of the revolutionary mentality, right. Is that idea that like, um, that it's proper to persecute the persecutors it, it, because, you know, to take it all the way back, actually, like, let, you know, um, take it back to like, uh, you know, take it all the way back to the Bible, right? You go back to the gospels and Jesus has that famous line where he says, uh, how can Satan cast out Satan? And if you take that in a sort of metaphorical way, Satan being like the kind of the spirit of, uh, you know, dis- disunion and violence and hatred, like coursing through a society or something like that. You know, this, this idea that like, um, you know, he, the gospels are taking place at a time where, you know, the Jews had in recent years uh, fought for their independence against Greek rulers who had blasphemed their temple, 
you know, in the Maccabean revolt, they gain their independence for a short period of time. And just before the gospels get started, the Romans come in and uh, retake the whole area. So now they're in charge again, and the Jews are not happy about it, understandably so, right? And then you have this guy, Jesus, coming along. And what is he saying? At a time where there's like revolutionary ferment in the air, as we saw, like, you know, uh, just not long, a few decades after after uh, Jesus' crucifixion, you know, at least as we think, um, you know, they rose up against Rome and the temple got destroyed. And then they rose up again, you know, in uh, the Bar Kokhba revolt and so forth. And so this revolutionary ferment was in the air at the time. And then you've got this guy from Galilee which is like a well-known area that's kind of a very Hellenized area. You know, there's a, it's kind of known for like um, sympathy with like, you know, at least like, you know, rel- relative acceptance of kind of the Hellenized kind of Greek culture around. You have this guy coming in from that area saying, uh, look, um, turn the other cheek. You know, um, if a soldier tells you you have to walk one mile with them, just walk two with them. If uh, he says, like, give me your coat, give him your cloak too. render unto Caesar what is Caesar's like, don't do all this stuff. This is at a period when, you know, these people are trying to fight for their independence. That is not what they want to hear. Right. And and part of them, part of the message, though, is like, even if you achieve what it is you think you're going to achieve here, even if you win, you're not you're not going to win. Like this becomes a cycle that just goes back and forth and it never, ever, ever ends. And you're going to be trapped in this cycle forever if you keep it up. And that is sort of, you know, and, and, and I think it's probably significant. I, you know, I'm not talking about the Bible as history here, but just take it as a, as a, you know, as literature, if you want to. It's very significant that at the very end, right before Jesus is crucified, um, you know, the people are given the option. Uh, shall we, uh, shall we, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an annual holiday and Pilate asks, uh, we're going to release one prisoner. Shall I release this Jesus guy or shall I release Barabbas? And Barabbas is not just any old criminal. He's not a thief. He's not a rapist. He's a revolutionary. They call him a rabble rouser. And so which direction do you want to, do you want to go? And they choose Barabbas to free him. And a couple decades later, they revolt against Rome. The temple is destroyed and the Jews are exiled from their homeland as a consequence. And if you look at like what happened with the Soviet union, for example, like, um, uh, Stephen Kotkin's book, a, a trilogy that he's working on right now um, uh, on a Stalin biography. If anybody's interested in this period, I mean, there's a lot of great books on the Russian Revolution and this th- that whole time. Um, I don't think you can do better than Kotkin's ongoing Stalin biography, which he's only two volumes into a three volume set uh, to, for the it, it, it focuses like far less on the atrocities and all that kind of stuff, which you can get anywhere and much more on. It's like, it's a, it's a book about politics. Like how is it that this actually happened? Like on a, on a, on the level of power, right? How are these institutions and these power relations formed out of essentially the chaos of, of the collapsed Russian empire. And um, one of the things that he points out is like, you know, once you get up to the mid 1930s, after the Holodomor, after the mass starvation, Kazakhstan, all this kind of stuff, you get to like 1930. And so you get up to like this 1935 period and Stalin could look around and say like, he won, you know, he had crushed the Kulaks. He had crushed his internal enemies. Trotsky is, you know, far away, like, you know, and all of his followers are completely like uh, out of the picture. And, um, you know, the Soviet Union is is rapidly industrializing at this point. And what does he do? And Kotkin puts it very nicely. He decides to just fly right into the mountain with, you know, the great terror of the late thirties, where he just starts massacring like everybody in the party who had helped him up to that point. And you say, why would he do something like that? Like what, well, you could put it down to his like individual paranoia and psychopathology and all that. And of course that's an element of it, but why was a guy of that temperament in that position in a place? like This is a, 
this is a massive country that, you know, theoretically in a massive bureaucracy with a lot of talented uh, and, and committed people who theoretically should have been able to deal with this one guy if that were the only issue, his individual psychopathology. But one of the things he does real well with is showing that, like, because of the way the, Rus- the Russian Revolution started and the Bolshevik takeover started, you know, with Lenin's just ferocious uh, attack on all of his enemies to the left and right, where it just began with mass murder and the the process that, you know, that that the country underwent for the Bolsheviks to actually, uh, you know, to, to, to take power and hold it was so overwhelmingly brutal that it just, it made it so that uh, it created this cycle of violence that was never going to end until it played itself out. And so nobody could ever trust anybody again. Everybody in the regime had oceans of blood in their hands. Everybody knew that, you know, at the drop of a hat, they could be denounced for something they had done, you know, in the twenties. And so nobody trusted anybody. And it just becomes this back and forth cycle where even when you win, you, it's not over, you know, and it, and it never ends that way. And that's kind of, you know, that's the, the poison pill and, you know, the revolutionary mentality in general, you know, it's the idea that you should persecute the, the persecutors, um, but you know, again, that creates this cycle of this cycle of revenge and violence that will just will just never end. Yeah, and eventually revolutions tend to start eating their own because after a while, that's kind of who's left. I mean, once you wipe out all the people who are actually your quote unquote enemies, then then all you got to do is start finding enemies within because that's all that's left. There, there's a per- yeah, there's that's a perfectly good reason why. All you know, the, it's a it's a meme at this point to point out how revolutions uh, eat their own and then end in conservative dictatorship, whether it's Napoleon or Stalin or whatever else. It's just a you know, it's a cliche at this point to point it out. And yet, uh, you know, there's it, it, there's a perfectly sort of, I guess you could say, game theoretical reason for you know why a violent revolution end, ends in that way. And, and you know, and I think that's it. You know, Satan cannot cast out Satan. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's like the um, the line in the True Believer. Of you, you can have a, a revolution. You can have a mass movement without a god, but you can't have a mass movement without a devil. Oh yeah, that's so true. Yeah. As you as you wipe out the devils, you've got to create some new ones to to kind of fill their space. Well, you know, one thing that um that that always drives me nuts is that one of the moves that people who are either outright communists or at least somewhat sympathetic to that ideology. One move that they'll often do when they're confronted with the irrefutable horrors of Stalin is they'll kind of rely on either the bad Stalin, good Lenin or and or bad Stalin, good Trotsky. And it's sort of like this no true Scotsman kind of thing where they're like, well, you know, the revolution was going all great and sunshine and rainbows and then oh, bad luck, you know, wonderful uh, comrade Lenin happened to die. And, uh, oh, we could have had the wonderful uh, uh, Trotsky taking over, but unfortunately, Stalin uh, ended up in power. But as, as I know, you know very well, and, you know, as anybody should know who's looked into this stuff at all, the idea that, that, that Stalin was like just this one unique bad, bad apple in the, the Bolshevik milieu and that you know, Lenin and Trotsky at worst were just sort of like well-intentioned reformers who <laughs> occasionally went a little too far and whatever. But if you actually go look at both their their rhetoric and their actions in, say, the 1920s, 
I don't see a huge amount of difference. I mean, maybe you can argue that Stalin was slightly worse in some respects than they would have been. I don't even think been, that's true. But- no, I, I don't even think that's true. I, I think that Stalin had control of, um, you know, a, a more well put together state apparatus, uh, you know, so he was able to sort of execute uh, his actions more efficiently. No, I, if you look at uh, look at the way both, both Lenin and Trotsky behaved, I don't think there's any question that they they were possessed uh, by as many demons as Stalin was, you know, and, and also, you know, one of the things that we also know from, uh, you know, the opening up of the Soviet archives, everybody was always like very curious. Kotkin points this out very well also that, um, you know, we were very curious, like, uh, what was it that was going on behind the scenes, you know, in the meetings of the Politburo and in the meetings of all, you know, the communist officials, you know, were they sort of just in it for the power and kind of, uh, you know, willing to take these actions to make sure they maintain their positions? Were they doing it for sort of cynical, internal, um, you know, uh, Politburo sort of uh, bureaucratic beefs and, and, and one-upsmanship or what? And what you find is no. What what they were was communists. They, they believed in communism, and that's why they were doing what they were doing. And, you know, we have all of the minutes to these records, you know, the, to these meetings and everything now, like just copious, copious records of of, of decades of uh, documents, because again, you know, you got to remember that these people believe they're on the right side of history. So they were keeping, they were keeping documentation of a lot of this stuff. You would think there, there's a lot of stuff in there that you would think, God, why would they not burn these documents? Like, this is crazy. Right. But the reason is they thought that they were keeping records for, um, for the, the, the glorious future that they were on their way to creating. And so they did keep these things. And when you read them, what you find is that these people were communists. You know, they believed in what they were doing, and that's why uh, that's why they were they were carrying out the program. What do you think it is about communism in particular? Is it as an ideology? Because there have been other mass ideologies, you know, both religious and secular from ancient times through to the modern era. And some of them have gone, you know, pretty to pretty dark places and pretty bloody places and gone off the rails. But do you have any sort of like a theory or, or even a, even a guess as to what it is about communism? So I don't have a general theory, uh, but there are aspects of it that, you know, I can speak to like what, like if you think, ask yourself, like what, like the difference between a proper and an improper revolution. Right. And, and, and uh, the way I would put it is like, this is there, you know, you have, you have two things, you have the institutions of a society. And, and by that, I don't just mean like federal agencies and stuff, but it could mean like, the the nuclear family it could mean you know what i mean like um it could mean maybe uh if you have uh, if you're in an, a tribal honor culture then you have like certain means of mediating disputes or, or whatever it is like the institutions that govern your society on like the very fundamental level and mediate relations between people whether they be economic or social or whatever uh and then you have the sort of values and mores of the people of that society and ideally the institutions and those values and mores are more or less uh, in touch with each other, right? But um, institutions, by their very nature, tend to um, preserve themselves. They're, you know, they're, they're. You want to keep your institutions stable, right? And so they tend to be conservative, like in in the small c kind of conservative sense. They they tend to um, not change very rapidly, uh, but over time, values and mores uh, do change. And occasionally the tension, the distance between the a society's values and mores and the institutions that govern that society, um, you know, get far enough apart that there's enough of a tension and enough interests 
and uh, elements of society and so forth that are, uh, you know, committed to maintaining those institutions as they are, that a revolution is needed in the sense of like radically and rapidly updating those institutions, perhaps by, you know, radical means in order to bring them up to speed with the values and mores of the people. That's one, right? And I would call that a, I would call that a proper revolution. Like that's a, that's a healthy revolution. And then you have uh, what I think is an unhealthy revolution, which is this, it's, it's, it is this vanguardism that Lenin really brought onto the world stage, right? Which is you have this vanguard of people who are convinced that their values and mores, that they're out ahead of not only the institutions of the society, but they're actually out ahead of the values and mores of the people of that society. You know, that's the whole essence of being a vanguard, right? Is the people aren't there yet. We're going to have to bring them along. And so, Rather than just uh, bringing the institutions up to date to match up with, you know, the evolved values and mores of the people, you actually have to bring the people themselves up to date. And you institute institutions whose purpose is to do that. You know, that's the whole idea of the new Marxist man, right? There was it's very open about the fact that like the, 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 the type of man who can live and thrive in a communist society is not here yet. We have to create him out of this human material that we've got here. Um, well, I mean, you know, you are, you are venturing down an extremely dangerous path when, when you do that, you know? Um, and so, you know, and that is, that's a big part of, uh, especially like vanguardist communism, you know, there's, there's other ways, like there's, you know, uh, you, you can look at the like anarchist anarcho-communism type of stuff, like however realistic that is in real life, um, you know, at least on a, on a theoretical and ideological level, maybe it wouldn't contain some of those same some some of those same uh poison pills but you know the whole idea of vanguardism as it you know uh, as it came in the 20th century through lenin and then the people who followed um i think that's a huge part of it you know is it is it you know and it has to do with what we we talked about earlier where it puts you in a position where you necessarily look upon the people that you govern as an enemy as an unsatisfactory you know batch of human material that you need to work on in order to uh make them fit for the for the society that you're trying to build and, um, you know, it just, it, yeah, it's very dangerous when, when, you know, when that happens. It's probably inevitable that sooner or later this would come up, but I couldn't help but think as I was listening to that, which, which I found a, a very interesting take on what in particular is, is so, I don't know, kind of over the top deranged about communist revolutionary ideology versus others is the question of, for lack of a better term, wokeism that you know we're aff- afflicted with uh, lately in in a lot of institutions of power and influence in the US and in much of the west and would you say that wokeism is also even though it's you know people refer to it as neo marxism and various other things but it, you know it's obviously influenced by that i think it's heavily influenced in its methods by maoism in particular but it's not the same thing as classical marxist you know class based um, ideology, but would you say that that it's also a vanguardist kind of a thing in the same way that it's like it's a it's a militant minority trying to forcibly change almost every aspect of kind of the culture and instant in, intermediate institutions, and that this is why. And I'm not talking about like the kind of like moderate parts of the woke crowd, but the the more uh, far out among them, right? The the people who are you know. Want to abolish the nuclear family and all kinds of other other stuff like this. That that's very similar in a lot of ways to 
you know, the communist revolutionaries of a hundred years ago, where it's like, they want to completely just wipe the slate clean uh, as far as culture and, you know, non-state institutions, intermediate institutions, that sort of thing. Uh, it, you know, it's, it's similar in structure. There's no question about that, you know, um, that it is, uh, the, you know, the very fact that it's something that grows out of elite institutions and is an ideology that, uh, that, that has to be imposed upon the lower classes, um, you know, kind of, kind of gives the game away that it is a very similar thing. Yeah. As far as, yeah, you know, it is, it, it is hard like to fight the language games with people. I mean, there is, you know, neo-Marxism is fine in a way you can, you can say that um, wokeism is kind of, uh, you know, the, the look in, in, to a certain extent, it's true that like the new left in the 1960s was disillusioned by uh, the working class in the United States, tending to support Vietnam, tending to reject the extremes of the sexual revolution and so on and so forth. And so they, you know, they went looking for new clients. There, there is like an element of that. Maybe it wasn't so conscious as that, but it, it developed in that direction. But, um, you know, one of the parts of uh, my Jim Jones series uh, that I, that I did that, um, that I was glad to include in there, because I think it's really important um, for people to understand is uh, the, the battle that the old left kind of the trade unionists and socialists in the 20th century went through uh, against the communists, you know, up until, up until the late, 40s, honestly, like the late forties, nobody was fighting against communism in the United States as it was really spreading through a lot of nations, except the Soviets and trade unionists, because they were the ones who saw it on the ground over um, these institutions on the left. They were, and they were, you know, they they were not interested in having that happen. You know, these trade unionists back in the day, and, and these American socialists, these were people who, you know, they might have uh, had problems with capitalism or at least the way it was configured. But these people were Americans, and so they, um, you know, people coming in who were being sponsored by the Communist Party USA, which itself was, you know, this was something that was denied for a long time, but we now know. Uh, thanks to declassified Soviet documents, that it is true that the Communist Party USA was was funded and directed by Moscow all along. And so they were seeing this stuff and they were fighting this battle alone for a few decades, you know, really fighting it too. I mean, like getting into street battles with these people sometimes. And, uh, you know, like, for example, when you get up into, um, you know, the late 40s with, uh, you know, the the Hollywood blacklists and, and HUAC and all that, one of the things that's a, you know, is a huge misconception about like how that whole thing really developed. Uh, I was talking to Alexander about this yesterday a little bit, actually, um, that, uh, you know, the, the, the whole Hollywood blacklist thing started because Hollywood unions, a lot of you know, these guys were good, like sort of social Democrat trade unionists. Uh, they were fighting with Communist Party, uh, you know, sponsored elements that were taking over all of the Hollywood unions. They were taking over writers guilds. They were taking over talent agencies. They had their own blacklist. They were keeping, you know, with with people who were not sort of, uh, you know, in keeping with the party line. They were keeping from getting jobs in Hollywood. Um, the uh, they had their unions that they were able to control, whether it was like a set painters union or a lighter a lighting union, whatever it was. They would have uh, them, you know, go on strike to stop the production of films that were uh, not in keeping with the party line. Um, they were they would take positions at, um, you know, production companies that like they, they really uh, they really 
coveted the position of script readers, for example, like the guys who would uh, read scripts as they were handed into the production company and decide whether it would get passed up to management for consideration, you know, for production, because then they could either change them to make sure that like certain elements that didn't fit the party line were taken out. So this was going on and uh, it had been going on for years and uh, the, these these good sort of left wing economic left wing right trade unionists in Hollywood are looking at this and they're like we can't we can't fight these people on our own anymore they've got like massive spawn these people can go on strike and stay on strike forever because they're getting money from CPUSA in New York which is getting money from Moscow and uh, you know and so they're able to achieve like you know certain uh, certain things for their workers for example by bringing labor pressure to bear that we can't because we don't have those kind of resources things like that and it was actually these good left-wing socialist trade unionists in ho- in these Hollywood unions that went to Congress and said we need some backup you know that's how the whole ho- Hollywood like huac uh, huac hearings started is it started because you had these sort of old left trade unionists coming to their government for help with these people and it turned into a debacle because you know, the House of Representatives is a mass of hysterical, uh, you know, pigs wallowing in their own egos. But um, but that's how it started, you know. And so these people, um, you know, they, they they knew about this before anybody else. And um, and it really wasn't until the 1960s when the youth movement really broke away from the old left and and then kind of, uh, you know, took over from there that, um, you know, that things really changed as much as they did. You know, the, 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 and, the, and what I guess my point is that, like, you know, up until then, up until the 60s, you know, the 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 left was something that really was a working class movement. And, you know, that doesn't that doesn't mean they didn't have sympathy with things like the civil rights movement and these other you know things that that uh, dealt with other other aspects of, of identity and solidarity. But um, it really was something that grew out of the working class. You know, these are people who painted buildings and swung hammers and, and did work every day and then went to their meetings at night um, to discuss, you know, how to how to bring the reforms and they, and they were, and they were almost all patriots, you know, too. They were American patriots. They, um, they were people who wanted to reform and improve the country that they lived in. They didn't want to destroy it. They didn't like people who were expressing open sympathy for, uh, you know, uh, 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 the world enemy in Russia. Yeah. And I think it's interesting sort of, uh, zooming the, the lens out to the, the labor movement broadly mid 20th century that I think it's pretty undeniable that, the most popular later labor leader in the U.S. in the mid 20th century was Jimmy Hoffa in terms of popularity amongst actual working people. Um, Jimmy Hoffa, who, you know, we mostly talk of today as being corrupt and mobbed up, and he obviously was and all that. But at the same time, if you set that aside and say, you know, what made him so popular, it's that he wasn't jumping on the the revolutionary i want to completely upend your culture and you know society and civilization he was very much um maybe a more corrupt version but very much more in the tradition of um someone like samuel gompers who's like nah i don't i don't want to overthrow everything we have i just want to you know get the workers a little bit bigger slice of the pie have a a little bit shorter of a work day a little bit better uh, uh, benefits and a little better pay and whatever like that you know the so-called bread and butter stuff and you know, I, I've always been been much more sympathetic to that that kind of left. You know, that's about kind of. I mean, it's conservative in its way, but it's it's much more focused on kind of like nuts and bolts. You know, stuff that actually helps real real working people, but that doesn't require them to completely like upend their own identity and culture and you know way of life and all that. Yeah, I think that's been you know. <laughs> It's kind of the problem with a lot of our modern politics today, right? Is if you for for you know several years now, 
if you believe that uh, the economy has elements to it that are rigged, and if you think that um, you know working people have lost their political voice over the last several years, and if you think that you know you need reforms in the way these things uh, are sort of are managed and governed in our society then really your only option is to ally yourself with a coalition that also requires that you hate your country and hate your culture and hate your history. And it's like, well, I'm not going to do that. So, uh, you know, people, this is what this, look, anybody who kind of saw this, um, you know, from, from a, a long time back, as soon as Trump came along and started talking, you know, however, disingenuously or not, or whatever, as soon as he came and started talking openly about working class issues from the right, Anybody could have told you that this was that it was going to take off very rapidly um, because it's been bottled up for a very, very long time. I mean, you go back, I think, in 19 was it 70 or 71. There was that famous hard hat riot in New York City where, you know, a bunch of uh, left wing, like far left wing, like youth protesters went out and they were burning American flags and so forth. And a bunch of construction workers, guys who were all members of unions, by the way, and who, you know, if you would have pulled their economic politics probably would have fit in pretty well with like, you know, the, 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 the left-wing parties of that time, but they saw that and they just, you know, they, they'd heard enough of it. A lot of these people again, had brothers and cousins who were in Vietnam or dying in Vietnam uh, who had died in Vietnam and they came off their job sites and beat the hell out of those people. And um, you know, that, so that's been a constituency that has existed uh, for a long time. And uh, you know, our, our, sort of two-party system has really divided things up in such a way that it's, you know, it, it's really made it impossible for that core of people that really does actually think that there are some things about the economy that need to be reformed and also doesn't hate their country and their history, which is most people. It's been very hard for those people to actually have any uh, political vehicle, you know, because those issues are kind of split. And uh, you have to do one or the other, depending on what your priorities are. And you just have to choose and whichever, you know, and, and the, those things that are most important are exactly what the side you, the one you side with never prioritizes. Right. So like, you don't hate your country. You feel like the Democrats like, require you. So I'm going to be a Republican, but I also, well, guess what? That's how they get you. And they're not going to give you when the Republicans have power, any of the economic stuff that you actually want. Right. Well, you know, I go over to the Democrats because, um, you know, I uh, just I, I feel like, um, you know, the cultural issues that the Republicans over here, whether it's the Christian right or whatever, I just cannot caucus with those people. I've got a gay friend, a gay brother, or sister and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, whatever the cultural issues are that I just can't, you know, I, I can't bear some of the stuff that's tolerated uh, over on that side. So I'm going to become a Democrat. But, you know, uh, I, 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 these econo- I think there needs to be a rebalancing of like economic issues and so forth, and they take power and it never happens over there either. And, you know, it's, it's been a very clever split that's existed for a really long time that I think is starting to break down now. And they're trying to put that uh, division back together, but it's, I think it's going to be harder and harder for them to do. That's a little off topic, sorry, but. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's fine. I I don't mind things going free range like this. It it seems like the really hardcore identity politics that's being pushed right now, right? If you look at it's being pushed by some of the most powerful institutions, it's being pushed by Hollywood and by the tech companies and by, you know, all the giant media, both alleged news as well as entertainment. Um, and then it's also being pushed by a lot of the so-called deep state, right? I mean, I'm sure you've seen some of the the wokeness being kind of pushed by the Pentagon and the CIA and institutions like this, you know? 
Yeah, if, this has been, we've got a long tradition of this. You know, if you go back to the 1850s, a lot of the most vitriolic, over-the-top, like militant uh, abolitionist uh, papers and movements that were, you know, calling for just slave uprisings in the South and mass killing in the South, calling for civil war followed by revolutionary councils, like a French Revolution style thing for the you know, people in the South. You know, a lot of those uh, those papers and movements were funded by extremely wealthy Northern capitalists who were at that exact moment in the process of just driving their workers into extraordinary degradation from a point where they were, which was already pretty low, you know, and, you know, so you have, you have John Brown's raid, um, you know, was, uh, you know, it was, it was funded by a bunch of millionaires up in New York state and, and in Massachusetts. Um, and so this is something that's existed for a long time. You go back to the 1960s, it's a remarkable thing, right? You would think about like, this just seems like the strangest thing imaginable if you really like just take it on a surface level, but you've got these, this, these mass uprisings coming from the young people in the, in the, in the late 1960s. And then as you get into the late sixties and the early seventies, you start seeing things that we know now, like the CIA funding and sponsoring Gloria Steinem and Ms. Magazine and a bunch of feminist movements and a bunch of pretty extreme, like, you know, uh, uh, left-wing social movements, whether racial movements or whatever. And you're like, well, that's very interesting. Why would the CIA want to do that? And some people, and, and, and you know, the, the, it, maybe it's kind of a, a, you know, hard thing to parse because we don't have like all of their internal memos on why they were doing this stuff. But when I see then, you know, in uh, 2010, 11, 12, somewhere in there, you've got the Occupy movement and surprise, surprise, Every corporation, every intelligence agency, law enforcement agency just goes whole hog on pushing anything but class politics. It's all gender, race, sexual revolutionary stuff, just hardcore. And it, you got to give them credit, man. It worked like a freaking charm. You know, nobody's, nobody cares about Occupy anymore. Nobody on the left cares about it, you know, and anybody who even remotely tries from the left to kind of keep those kind of politics going, you know, people like Glenn Greenwald or, or Matt Taibbi, the people who are still kind of interested in keeping the spirit of, of the left that came out of the financial crisis going and, and the failures of the wars. Uh, those people are hated by the left, you know, the, as it exists now, kind of the liberal left, almost as much as they hate Trump. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, a ve- it's very effective. You know, it comes back to like what you said at the beginning, kind of a divide and conquer strategy. But, you know, you got to give these people credit. They know what they're doing. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it seems like it's above all else designed to prevent the uh, the the kind of broadly anti-establishment populist left and the broadly anti-establishment populist right from coming together on a whole bunch of issues where they actually are in agreement and you know kind of yeah. uh, taking out our our wonderful um, politically incorporated elite classes for whom I, I don't have a whole lot of uh, sympathy at this point. I mean. You know, I, I look back on on earlier times in American history and I go, you know what, at least at least some of the time, the corporate and political elites of certain eras, you could say what you will about some of the things they did and how they did it. And I'm never fans of these people, but at least in some other time periods, you could say they're competent, like some of what they're doing is is horrible, but at least at the end, like someone like the Dulles brothers, you know, you look back at characters like that and it's like. 
at least they were competent in their way, right? Even though I might disagree with a whole bunch of what they did, but those, those sorts of people, whereas I, I look at the, the elites of today and I'm just like, they're, they're stupid and incompetent aside from being, you know, evil and, and uh, you know, being a bunch of, of kleptocrats and whatever. Yeah. I think a lot of people would love to have elites today. And I don't know who these people are um, other than that, you know, they, they, they're people who, Get to the top of a bureaucratic hierarchy a lot differently. It selects for different people than um, you know a, a sort of more free for all or open political or startup you know type hierarchy or something. It just selects for different type of personality. You know, Christopher Lash's book Culture and Narcissism gets into this really deeply, right? Where a bureaucracy really like incentivizes and selects for extreme narcissists. Uh, and not just, you know, in, in talking about in the clinical sense, not just, um, you know, in the sort of sense that people are arrogant and need the spotlight on them, but people who um, are experts at image management and, um, that, and and not just sort of in a PR way, but in their psychological life where that is their um, that is their obsession, you know, in a Dostoevskian kind of kind of way where, um, you know, those are the type of people you select for. Because, you know, being in a bureaucracy is really about managing relationships and managing perceptions of other people. And, uh, you know, and that's, that, that's really how you advance. And we've kind of got a very mature bureaucracy at this point. And, um, you know, we've lived in a world since 1991 or so uh, where it's very easy to imagine that our actions uh, as a, as a country and the actions of our leaders don't particularly have a whole lot of consequences. You know, we can lose two wars, be in, uh, you know, the longest war in American history by, by quite a long time, lose both of them. And, uh, eh, you know, I mean, it sucks. It makes us angry and we will turn the news on ever, but like, it, you know, somebody didn't ever turn the news on. Um, they could be forgiven for not even knowing we were even at a war in, in, in any war, um, you know. And so it's been really easy since 1991 to kind of just let these people do whatever they want because there doesn't really seem to be any consequences, and you know, for, for any of it. And people are people are happy to just kind of focus on focus on the game that week or whatever's going on in their individual life. An ideal situation is what the normal people in a country should be able to do. You know, you, you don't want most people in your country to be engaged hard in politics all the time. You know, politics is something that, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's something that is, it's not a game for everybody. You know, it's something that sort of brings out the worst in people in a lot of ways, like just naturally, right. It, 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 it sort of breeds a, a paranoid outlook. It breeds an us versus them outlook, like by its very nature. Right. And so you don't necessarily want, everybody engaged in politics all the time. Not everybody, as we're seeing now, has the emotional stability to engage with politics all the time and maintain their, uh, you know, maintain their equilibrium. Um, and so ideally, if we had competent people who were actually running the country um, or, or managing, you know, the institutions of the country, um, most people could just focus on the game and focus on, you know, what their kid's doing at school. And, um, and, uh, and that would be great. You know, that would, that would be awesome. I would love to go back to that. I would love to go back to that, but. <laughs> I, I, I agree with that a hundred percent. I mean, I, one of the things that I can't stand about both the current wokeism crowd in the United States today, as well as the old school Bolsheviks, like you were talking about in the anti-humans is that 
they are both in in slightly different ways, although also somewhat overlapping. They're both totalitarian in the sense not just of that they want, you know, some sort of all powerful police state 1984 type stuff going on, but they're totalitarian also in the sense that they literally want every single aspect of life to be political. And not only that everything has to be political, but that everybody in the nation has to agree 100% on every aspect of it too, which is, you know, a whole other problem. But just the idea that everything, every aspect of human life needs to be politicized, this really uh, d- drives me nuts. I mean, I'm I'm personally a, an anarchist in the sense of like, I, I think the state is is not a good thing and I would, I would prefer it to go away. I'm also realistic to realistic enough to realize like I'm, I'm not anticipating this is going to happen anytime soon. Um, but I'm, I'm very much more of the kind of like uh, uh, Tolkien influenced anarchist of you know, I, I like I like society and culture and, and families and like genuine local communities and, you know, go into your kids sports games and all that fun stuff. And it just it, it drives me crazy that that people want to politicize everything. I mean, you used to be able to talk about certain huge subjects of life without worrying about the political opinions of the person you're speaking to. And it's gotten to the point now where even sports and the weather, which used to be the go-to small talk that's not going to offend anybody, right, other than, oh, they don't like your team or whatever, but that's as far as it went. Now it's like, no, if you talk about sports, next thing you know, you're arguing about kneeling during the national anthem or whatever. And if you talk about the weather, next thing you know, you're talking about carbon taxes and climate change. Or like Every single thing has to be political. Uh, political messaging has to be shoehorned into every kid's cartoon show. Um, every movie you go has to be wagging its finger in a, in a preachy way, bludgeoning you with some political messaging. And I, I, it just drives me insane. Yeah. I mean, well, you, you mentioned, you mentioned like a type of Tolkien anarchism, right? And, uh, I, I have a lot of sympathy for it. Look, I used to be a, I, I, I read my Ayn Rand in late high school and it took me, you know, the way it takes everybody at that age, sort of. And I was a hardcore libertarian, you know, almost ANCAP type person, like for a period in my early 20s. And it took me a while to kind of cure myself of that disease. And uh, the, the thing that really cured me of it and the thing that I talked to, but, but, but like I said, temperamentally, I have a lot of sympathy for those perspectives and for those people who, who believe those things for sure. But when I talk to uh, anarchists, libertarians, et cetera, today, the problem that I present to them, and I, and I, and I, maybe you can give me a good answer on this one, but I've never really gotten a great one, is that I think it has to do exactly with what you're talking about here, like politis- why everything is so politicized, is if you look throughout the Cold War, you know, uh, because of the nature of the Soviet Union, right, in the sense that I don't mean the violent nature or whatever, but like the thing that really seemed like the big contrast between our two uh, civilizations, societies, whatever, is that we were capitalists and they were collectivist, collectivist economically, right? So we had to defend the free market and that way of sort of uh, managing human exchange against this sort of form of socialism that, you know, in the road to serfdom kind of way, like inevitably becomes authoritarian and totalitarian. And that became like the whole focus of the the wing of politics that called itself conservative and really should have been concerned with things like preserving communities and families and the institutions that uh, that can govern a society in the absence of state bureaucracies and state institutions. Right. And so like, you know, Tolkien could be um, a kind of anarchist, right? Because he's thinking about a, a society where you have these intact civil associations, intact families, intact sort of community groups and tight, you know, compact communities that really in, in many ways 
are bound by custom and tradition in a way that allows them to manage social relations uh, without a whole lot of management from the top down. And because, uh, you know, the the conservative wing of our politics throughout the Cold War and, and even today to a large degree uh, was was just so monomaniacally focused on capitalism at the expense of everything else, you know, they weren't paying attention when uh, something happened where, uh, you know, a, you, you move the, the factory that employs 60% of the people in some Midwestern town out of the country to China because it's his property. It's a free market. He has the right to move his factory wherever he wants, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you just essentially dropped a nuclear bomb on that town. And, you know, the, the sort of libertarian answer to a situation like that is, well, yeah, okay, but it's, it's more efficient you know, uh, economically to do that, that capital is now freed up that, you know, the capital that was kind of tied up in that inefficient, uh, you know, uh, situation there is now freed up and can be redeployed in more efficient ways. It's going to increase economic opportunity overall. And so, yes, those people's lives are disrupted, but, you know, now they're going to maybe move to different cities or whatever, but, you know, overall, it's going to keep moving us in the right direction. And there, you know, what they, what they lost sight of, I think, was that, um, even to the extent that it might be economically more efficient, um, we don't really know how things like communities come together and form. Like we we can't manufacture that, and it takes a long time. You can destroy it overnight, um, just like that. You can destroy a community. How you can just put one back together? We've seen attempts to do that, you know. And in in a sense, it's like a, that is sort of the communist project in a way. The idea that you can just manufacture communities, right? That'll just sort of that'll just work together when we, even when we try to build cities, like, you know, uh, the famous planned cities like Brasilia and places like that, people don't like living in them. They don't like them. And you can't just build all the little sinews and social connections that turn a group of people who live around each other into an actual functional community. And when you have, uh, you know, a bunch of people who don't have strong family ties, they don't feel strongly embedded in, uh, you know, a, a local community. They don't have really like religious, strong religious institutions that they're a part of anymore. Any of these other things that would give them a sense that, um, you know, if I lose my job or if there's an economic recession or anything like that, I can, I have things I can fall back on. There's nothing except the state bureaucracy to insinuate itself into those human relationships in order to manage those things. And, um, you know, unfortunately, that's kind of where we are today is we have, uh, you know, our, our community relationships, our, our families, our religious institutions, all our, our, our sense of shared customs and traditions and values that could govern, you know, relations between people without needing a human resources uh, officer to come talk it out with us. Those things have largely all been wiped out in, in a lot of places. And, um, you know, and so, what we end up doing is, you know, those people feel unprotected. They feel vulnerable. They feel like their lives are unstable. They feel if the slightest thing goes wrong, their, their life is going to be completely thrown into total chaos in a way that's, you know, possibly going to be irrecoverable. And those are not, that's not the type of society that is going to uh, support a libertarian government. You know, that's the type of society that is going to uh, expect state support. And, um, you know, that's going to take a long time to put back together, you know, and, and, and any liberty, you know, I would become a libertarian tomorrow again, if instead of just sort of focusing on individual instances of government coercion and, and kind of like wanting to tear down these institutions and expecting, we're going to go back to the way things were in the 19, you know, tens or something like that overnight, you know, that 
looked at it as like, this is a, this is going to be a long project. It's going to take decades before we even have a society that is remotely prepared to take care of itself without these, these state bureaucracies and institutions, you know, intervening in all these ways. And so uh, we need to approach it like that and rebuild these institutions. It's not a, it's not a coincidence, by the way, that the Soviet Union they knew this very well. They explicitly attacked all of these non-state sort of intermediate institutions, those things that were between the individual and the state. So that when they were done with it, what you had was a mass of individuals and you had the state. I mean, the proletariat, like Carl Schmitt gives a really good, uh, a really good definition of the proletariat. He says, it's just not, it's not just a worker. It's a worker who has reached that final state in a Marxist sense where he's been alienated from his community, from his family, from his religious institutions, from all of the things. And now he's just this individual with no, no ties, no anything. And he's just this guy. And now that person uh, is going to need a a revolution. He's going to require some form of like state communism or state social, whatever to take care of him. And, uh, you know, the, the first task is, it has got to be, I mean, the, the Eastern European and Soviet bloc countries, they struggled with, or they still struggle with this is, you know, they got their freedom, quote unquote, in 1989, 91. But what you found was a society full of people where uh, all of those intermediate institutions from the family on up had been completely decimated. And they, you know, when you see people like Viktor Orban, for example, like instituting these policies that are called fascist, trying to rebuild the Hungarian family structure and, and, and all that, it looks to a liberal country, like some sort of like hyper conservative, crazy thing, but they are trying to rebuild something that was completely wiped out by the Soviet Union. And, uh, you know, to somewhat of a lesser degree, I think that's a project we've got to be engaged in over here in the West. Yeah. In, in, in kind of responding to that, uh, just a couple of things I would say. One is that um, I would also be very critical of the, the particular form of capitalism um, that is that is evolved in the United States. That's you know really corporatism when you get down to it, in, in which the the market is free, but only in certain ways, and there still is a huge amount of state intervention, usually uh, on behalf of corporate interests against you know other other institutions and individuals and all that. Yeah, and yeah. so I'm 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 on board with a lot of the critiques of capitalism in practice. In, in that kind of like very, very centralized, corporatist, oligarchical kind of uh, form that we have had it. And I think um, I'd also be very critical as well of the centralization. I think it would be a good step in the right direction to to start decentralizing things a lot more. And, you know, it could be done incrementally and gradually so as not to be a complete disruption. And yeah. one of the the arguments that various types of of uh, libertarian anarchists they'll they'll debate the whole idea of if you could push the magical button to make the state disappear like right now or tomorrow or whatever would you push it and some some of them will say yeah i'd push it so hard that my my thumb would break and whatever yeah. and, and, and if you don't you're not a real communist or you're not a real anarchist it's like, yeah, oh, yeah, maybe yeah, just yeah. not a crazy person <laughs> well i mean my answer is if you pushed it right now Everybody except five people are going to immediately be, um, you know, falling over themselves to bring it back or to recreate a new version of it or, you know, to to set up a new state because. And to, and to make sure that anybody who says the word libertarianism or anarchism again for the next hundred years is burned at the stake. <laughs> right. Because you haven't done anything to attack the demand for state power. 
right? In the same way that if, if you just, you know, wage war on drugs, but nobody's doing anything to address, like, why do people become addicted to drugs in large numbers right. in the first place? You're not going to accomplish anything positive. You're just going to lock a bunch of people up and drugs. The drug addiction problem is going to either get no better or even get worse. Yeah, it's like it's like it would be like trying to teach a person to walk by just yanking their wheelchair out from under them. Exactly, know? exactly. Yes. Or yeah. <laughs> um, the those those uh, tribes where they put like uh, rings on their neck to make their neck long, but then what happens is their neck gets so weak that if you take the rings off suddenly, then they like literally can die. Um, yeah. That that people because there's been so much state power and it's grown so much over the past hundred years in the United States that that people would have to kind of learn to walk again. And yeah, if you just toss them, toss them out. Yeah. And, and, and that aspect of their critique is completely right. Right. Because they'll say, well, what is it you think has caused all of these intermediate and local institutions to atrophy? It was state power, right. Largely. Right. And totally, totally true. But the fact remains that uh, those things have atrophied, you know, and that has to be addressed before you go yanking the supports out out from under people, especially since a lot of those supports, it's not just a matter of like public welfare or something where, you know, somebody's not going to be able to sort of make their rent if they don't have state support. We use a lot of these state institutions now to manage our human relations, our relationships between people, you know, relationships between individuals, between communities, like we, you know, things that we used to be able to do on our own, you know, things that, you know, uh, two, two, you know, people who run different businesses have an issue with each other, but um, their wives are both members of the Rotary Club and they, they both go to the same neighborhood church. And so there's actually like institutions, there's community interest in solving this sort of dispute between these two people. There are people, at, you know, with, with a measure of credibility and authority that both of those people recognize that are going to be able to influence them to kind of like de-escalate and so forth. We just had all of these sort of organic, you know, life ways that existed that grew up, you know, gradually over the course of, of our national life that over the last several decades, over the last century, you know, in a, in a gradual way, but really rapidly over the last few decades have been eroded. And, um, you know, and those things that we, we've got to, we've got to start rebuilding those things. And, or I, I should probably put it differently though, because I don't think they can be rebuilt. I think they have to be regrown. You know, that's something that grows more like a plant than is constructed artificially. And so we have to give those times to those things time to grow, which does mean like, taking away those supports in a measured way so that, you know, organic support structures, social support structures can start to take their place. But if you were to push that button, I mean, it would be, you know, it would be mass murder in the streets the next day. <laughs> and follow, follow, it would be mass murder in the streets the next day, followed by uh, a government more powerful than, you know, one you can possibly imagine. <laughs> yeah. This, this is why, especially in recent years, I've, increasingly turned away from like looking at big picture political solutions because i don't think they exist you know sort of top down like oh we just need to get this yeah. person in the white house or these guys in congress yeah, yeah. or whatever and we need to just you know abolish this department and whatever and and i've increasingly turned my focus both in my own life and when people bother to ask me like well, what can we do about all these problems out there in the world and um I, i've kind of gone in a, in my own way in sort of a more jordan peterson direction of like start here <laughs> like start with uh, improving yourself, making yourself more resilient and, and self-reliant and competent, and then branch out from there, you know, make your, make your family more cohesive and functional 
and you know try to try to make yeah, that. It, 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 it's interesting how a lot of these revolutionaries we're talking about from. Rousseau and Marx, like you talk about in Paul Johnson's book about the intellectuals all the way on up to the new left people in in the 60s. You know, these are people with grand plans for remaking the entire world. And you look at their personal lives and they are a dissolute, degenerate disaster. Yeah. And virtually all of them, maybe, maybe all of them, I'm just leaving myself a little out with virtually. um, One of the things they, they seem to hate more than anything else is often the family. And, you know, you could go, go all the way back to Plato um, and, and the Republic and, you know, essentially abolishing the family is a, a big part of Plato's plan. All right. So as we're getting ready to wrap up and uh, I appreciate all your time today, I know you're a busy guy uh, and I know what it's like to be a busy guy. The, for, for the listener, just to let them know if they haven't already encountered this episode, the anti-humans, it, it goes from the 1920s and some of the early, crimes and atrocities and things of the Bolsheviks through the, the thirties, you know, you, you cover the Holodomor a bit in Ukraine and, and just the, the horrible terror of, of that deliberate famine of Ukraine. And then through the kind of world war two era, and then kind of ending the story in the aftermath of world war two and showing how the, the Soviets, they, if anything, amped up, their their crimes and atrocities after world war ii in in its aftermath above above and beyond what they were even doing during the war when they were kind of reconquering so just if if i could get you to just sort of summarize with a big picture take on how would you explain what it is that makes these uh communist atrocities so like uniquely horrifying and and terrifying like what is it that that really strikes you as just something different or next level compared to typical run-of-the-mill historical you know atrocities and genocides which are all over the place throughout history you know i made a a comment in that episode that i almost took out because i knew it was going to be controversial but i left it in because i thought it was I thought it was maybe the most effective way, given our politics as they are today, to really make the point that I was I was trying to make, which is that the communist regime, as it as it took form at least uh, in the Soviet Union under Bolshevism, uh, is is scarier to me than Nazism was. And um, I don't mean to compare the scale of the atrocities. You know, to me, it's it's not about like you know the communists killed this many more people. It's it's not about that. Um, to me, it's much more about like what the project was and the nature of, of the sadism that you found. You know, if you look at the, uh, the Nazi project, I think that it's something that I recognize from history, right? It, Hitler to me looks like a warlord, a genocidal warlord who had no regard for human life, uh, especially on the Eastern front, who was paranoid and, um, you know, wiping out what he perceived to be uh, internal threats and people who were, um, you know, uh, again, like you add like the, the the sort of eugenic, like racial element that was the the sort of and and the the technological capability and the efficiency of the German state that they had. Um, those are unique elements of it, but the, the the basic drive behind it, I think, is something that you you see in genocidal warlords to a degree throughout history, with like you know, sort of a modernist twinge. When I look at what was going on with the Soviet Union, especially after the war, when the regime was no longer threatened, 
when Soviet power was unchallenged in Eastern Europe, when their, their, their control over the state institutions were um, was consolidated, you know, you see something that you don't recognize through throughout the rest of history. You know, when you you know with the with the like with the Nazis, what you're really afraid of is what they're going to do to take power. That's what you're afraid of from the Mongols. You know, that's what you're afraid of through for, for regimes throughout history is what it is that they're going to do in their quest to establish dominance. And genocides and mass atrocities have taken place, you know, in, in that sort of matrix for, for a long, long time. With the Soviets, uh, what you're afraid of is what they're going to do after they take power. Once they have you in their firm control, once once they've established dominance and they and they're not worried about you re- revolting or rebelling anymore that's when it really starts and um you know you saw this throughout eastern europe after the war in in a lot of places like you know poland for example uh, but but all over where they would empower again they would very often um empower local minorities who had a grievance against the local population put them in charge of like a, a reworked uh concentration camp and they would put enemies of the communist regime into that camp. And, um, you know, I, I mean, it's, it's again, very hard to even, even say this, but in, in so many cases, it's really true that, uh, you know, these, the, that they made what was going on in the camps under Nazi control sometimes look relatively sterile and tame, you know, in the sense that they weren't just extermination camps. They were that, but they were, they were torture camps to an extraordinary degree. Like the level of sadism that was taking place was incredibly brutal. Now, a lot of those, you could sort of just say that, uh, you know, this wasn't necessarily state policy. They were overlooking it. Maybe they were kind of allowing it to happen because they didn't care or because they thought it was going to maybe going to help them like established dominance over the region by, you know, making the local population hate these minority groups that they had empowered even more. And so making them more dependent on the, on the state, whatever it is, um, you, you could make all those arguments in some of those places. One of the places that you can't make that argument is in Romania. And I finish up the episode talking about what happened in uh, a few prisons, but primarily in Pitesh prison in, uh, in Romania in the late forties and into the early fifties. And this was, uh, this was an experiment that was run by the communist regime in a country where there was no civil war. There was no serious resistance. Um, you know, the Romanian state wasn't collapsed like it was in Poland and a lot of the other countries uh, by the war because Romania, you know, didn't really get invaded much by the Soviet Union. They, they switched sides like toward the end in 44. And so um, the Romanian state was actually intact and its institutions were intact. And so the Soviets were able to just take those institutions over. And so they actually just had control of a relatively intact country. And there was no serious resistance movement. And by the late 40s, there was virtually no real resistance movement. And so, you know, the, the, that's the context that they start this thing that they call uh, an experiment. You know, those are the conditions that this thing that they call an experiment takes place. And, um, you know, the experiment, people, again, can listen to the episode. I, I won't go too deep into it because it's really something that is, um, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's a level of grotesque brutality that, um, you know, you're not going to find anywhere unless you go look into police reports and court records uh, having to do with um, the most deranged serial killers that we've ever found, what they would do with like a captive prisoner, for example. And um, but, to you know, to sort of put it 
briefly the goal of these things, of these, uh, was to see if through mass torture and psychological degradation, they could take the most committed uh, people who were most resistant to communist ideology and, and the communist regime in general. And they specifically selected uh, theology students from the religious schools in Romania, college students, like uh, university level students. They, um, these, these very conservative, very religious students and uh, who, who were often, you know, had been members of groups that were re- resistant to the communist regime before the resistance kind of fell apart. And they collared them up and they put them in Pitesh prison and they put them and, and this was done with the uh, full, you know, they kind of tried to cover a little bit of this up uh, later on after it, it kind of came out and they purged a bunch of people for uh, unrelated reasons. But, um, you know, we know now that this is uh, that this is something that not only was approved and monitored at the highest level, that Moscow, you know, so the, the Soviet Russia itself actually sent advisors out to help uh, manage and advise the experiment. And um, for uh, a period of several years, they would bring these these students in and put them through this re-education program, sort of based on you know Skinner's kind of you know behaviorism, which was really kind of the, the 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 big thing at the time. It's this idea that you know just like you could train Pavlov's dog to have a you know a reaction um, when you just just by conditioning him through pain, conditioning him through suffering kind of the clockwork orange, you know, story is very similar to that actually in many ways that you could induce a reaction that would change and reorder the personality on a fundamental level so that you could take the most devoted Christian and you could make them not just say, uh, yes, I agree. I hate Jesus. Please stop torturing me, but that you could actually make them hate their religion. Um, that you could take somebody who was the most devoted person to his family or to his country and reorder their personality through pain and degradation in such a way that again, it wasn't just uh, yes, yes, I, I hate those things. Please stop torturing me that you could actually change them on a fundamental level. And um, you know, they took these, these people and uh, they put them through a program where they would be tortured in the most inhuman uh, ways not only physically, although they were tortured um, unimaginably in, in you know physical ways, uh, but but psychological torture and degradation um, to to a, a degree that again you're not going to find anywhere outside the annals of of you know records of serial killers, um, and they would go through this for months and months and months and months at a time, and um, you know just to sort of like give people maybe one example of the kind of thing I'm talking about, they would take these religious students and uh they would well i don't know what kind of stuff do you talk about on here say whatever you want to say however however you want to say it yeah all right so you know yeah people can listen to the episode but um you know as an example they would um hold these uh black masses with these students and these are these are these are people who have been tortured to such an extraordinary degree i'm talking hours of brutal torture every day for months you know, by this point. And, um, you know, they would hold, uh, make, force them to hold like black masses where they would go through uh, a liturgy. Um, and instead of bowing to, uh, you know, like an image of uh, the cross, they would make them bow down to an image of a phallus. And when they would take communion, they would, you know, instead of eating a bread, a piece of bread and, and some wa- drinking some wine, they would force them to eat feces and drink urine. 
And they would do things like uh, hold these people down and sodomize them with like large, uh, you know, extremely painful like objects uh, while holding their face up to a religious icon while uh, liturgical music was being played in the background, trying to create these associations in their mind between this extreme degradation and pain so that when, you know, in the future, when they would see these things, they would get triggered in a way that would, uh, that would, you know, make them feel revulsion for these things that they, you know, previously had, had loved and devoted themselves to. And, you know, that's just one, you know, that's just, that's just one little example of something that again went on for uh, for several years and was done as state policy to a, a captive people um, when there was no serious resistance movement of any kind uh, in Romania, and um, you know it's the kind of thing that yeah look you know in the United States we've got Milai massacres we've got Ludlow massacres we've got wounded knees and all sorts of horrible. Horrible stuff, no question about it. Uh, but when you when you read stories like about what was going on at Patesh Prison again as state policy, you know, I, I think that uh, I tell people sometimes that whatever the United States faults in five hundred and a thousand and two thousand years when people are reading history books about us, um, I think that if there's any justice in the world, um, if you know, we, we'll get credit for putting a man on the moon, and we'll get credit for outlasting and destroying that evil empire. Yeah, and it, it was hard to listen to, and I would recommend my listeners definitely check the episode out, but I would also say don't listen to it while you're eating, and uh, maybe don't listen to it with like little kids around or anything like that for sure, because it's it's graphic and horrifying. And I'm I'm someone who, you know, sometimes covers uh, dark and, and disturbing topics, and I often will say, even in the classes I teach, that some of the most important uh, topics in history are often the most ugly. Because that's where often like the the biggest lessons lurk is where you don't want to look. But I, I've got to ask, as someone who's more than once been been depressed by studying particular historical topics and you know making podcasts about certain things, that there have been certain topics where it slowed me down um, working on a podcast episode or whatever because it was something that was like just dark and depressing. How how did your mental health do? I know that, you know, you often cover kind of difficult topics and you seem very just kind of uh, interested in, in the darker corners of history, but did you do okay? Like doing that research and putting together that episode or did it really affect you? Um, did, did you have to like go, I don't know, play with puppies every time after you finished working on it or something like that to, to even out? Cause it's tough. Yeah. The, the, the Romania part, um, it bothers me a lot. You know, the uh, a lot of the other stuff is um, a lot of sort of torture and mass killing of the kind that is insane and brutal and, and, and awful, but that you, you know, that you're, you can you're kind of used to if you if you read a lot of history, maybe. Um, although, again, the motivations and the form it takes are, are somewhat different. But, uh, you know, you, it's when you get to the, the part about Romania and some of the uh, aspects in other countries that, you know, weren't quite as 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 direct, but, um, but sort of like very clearly had the same in, in motivations behind them that, um, yeah, yeah. It, it, you know, it, it bothers me in a way that none of the other stuff I've covered bothers, bo- bothers me because, you know, one of the things I really, really tried to do, like there's an aspect of this episode that I, that I really am not proud of and that I don't like, which is, you know, when I did the Israel Palestine podcast, pretty much everybody, uh, tells me, and I, 
I don't know if I accomplished this fully, but I really did try hard to um, to look at the Zionists, even the hardcore Zionists, even the violent ones, and to look at the Palestinians, even the violent ones, and try to be like, okay, where are these people coming from? Like, let's get into it and really try to like, and I wouldn't feel comfortable talking about something and putting an episode out until I could feel like I had an idea of where those people were coming from and the world they're inhabiting. And I did that same thing when I did my Jim Jones series. Like I really, like I spent, I listened to all 1000 hours that we have of like they're in their, you know, their meeting tapes and Jim Jones sermons for months. I had him in my headphones like day in, day out. A lot of it I listened to, I mean, I listened to more than once. So I listened to several thousand hours of this guy talking. I read everything out there to really try to get to the point of like, what was this crazy guy this you know crazy cult leader who brought 900 people to their deaths and all of his insane inner circle like where where were they coming from like i'm not putting this this series out and these episodes out um until i can offer uh something other than like look at these psychos right and you know i'm going to cover uh the the communist issue again in the future because i'm just not there yet you know when i and and people who recognize like a change in tone um, in this episode from those other ones where there's like, uh, you know, there's no empathy, really, you know, it's more just sort of a litany of these crimes and like, look at this disaster that's taking place. Um, they're right about that. And I, I accept that as a criticism, actually. It's a criticism I have of the episode myself. And it's because I'm just not there yet. You know, I look at these people, I look at the book. Yeah. So yeah, sorry about that. My computer's on the fritz today, but again, you know, that's a, uh, it's a criticism. I actually uh, take to heart and I had for myself, even as I worked on and released the episode. Um, but you know, it's, it's just, it's something that's going to stick with me until I, until I figure it out. I have had a, a few friends and, and, and people who who know the subject even better than I do tell me that um, it's not something I'm ever going to fully work out because uh, the reality is that, you know, a portion of the world was, taken over by Satan. And, um, you know, I, uh, that's not an answer that satisfies me, but to be honest, that's pretty much where I'm at with it right now. Yeah. Well, thank you for in a way kind of taking one for the team and, and covering such a, you know, disturbing, depressing, uh, in many ways, disgusting subject, because, you know, like I was kind of saying before, sometimes the most important corners of history are the darkest, especially when it's something like the crimes of communist regimes that often get either completely ignored or, or explained and justified away. And it's like when you when you hear about what happened uh, in, in that Romanian prison, it's like I, there is nothing that can that can, you know, explain that away or just there's, there's no amount of context, um, even even if there was a resistance movement or whatever, which there wasn't like it was completely gratuitous and whatever. But even if there was some kind of nasty resistance terrorist movement going on or even that, there's nothing that, that could possibly uh, justify that. I think it would be easier for me to deal with um, if it had been like Abu Ghraib kind of thing, right? Like those people at that prison went off the rails and this thing happened. Um, but the idea of this being state policy, not only from the Romanian government, but with advisors from Moscow overseeing the thing and managing the thing in like a scientific way, as far as they were concerned, you know, um, uh, that shows you that um it's not just about crazy people or crazy, uh, you know, individuals doing doing things when they're unsupervised or or have poor leadership or whatever. It shows that our institutions themselves can become uh, completely deranged to a degree that uh, can, can uh, make you know an entire society uh, resemble um, you know the lair of a serial killer. And that's a terrifying thing. 
Yeah, well, thank you for doing the episode and thank you for doing this episode. Thanks for taking the time and chatting with me today and sticking it out despite some some tech hiccups along the way and whatever. Um, it's been great talking to you and any, anything else you want to plug or whatever on the way out, feel free. Uh, yeah, no, uh, the podcast is Martyr Made if you guys don't know about it. And, um, you know, uh, yeah, check it out and um, you'll hear a more more horrific shit like you heard today. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thanks, Daryl. Yep, thanks.